It was 1924, January. The Texas sun, hanging there like a Christmas bulb, was more forgiving now down at Sugarland Prison Farm, though some days could still creep up to 80 or so. Leadbelly had been in prison for five years, seven months, and six days, give or take. His sentence for the murder of Will Stafford, a man who fell for the same woman he had, was no less than seven, no more than 30 years. So he had just one more year to go, or 23. But he had a plan, not another prison escape. Those never ended well for him. His plan was good behavior and a song. He had been scrawling lines in pencil on a piece of paper he kept under his pillow in his cell, coming up with something special for the governor, a man named Pat Neff. He had the power to grant pardons to prisoners, though he seldom did. The governor in office before him had been impeached for a number of shady dealings, one of which had been selling pardons. So Pat Neff was not inclined to follow suit. But that was not going to stop Leadbelly from trying to get one. He wrote a song about his life, his crime, his family, his wife. It was really only full of half-truths, but it sounded good. And today was the day, this most important of days. The governor was rolling up to the prison now. Four black cars, one after the other, crunching over the gravel. The governor arrived with his wife and a delegation of women who kept automatics in their pocketbooks, just in case. Leadbelly had paid a nickel to a boy to wash and crease his white suit. Most inmates didn't keep white-pressed suits on hand, but Leadbelly did. He put it on, shined his black shoes, tuned his 12-string Stella guitar before throwing it over his shoulder and then walking out to meet the governor. Governor Neff was sitting outside on a porch, enjoying the cool breezes of the evening, his arms folded, his legs crossed. He was imposing in his high collar and bow tie, but eager to hear what kind of music was tucked away behind the prison walls. White suit on, guitar in hand, Leadbelly greeted the governor, took a deep breath, called to mind the songs he knew so well, and began to sing. What happens next is history. Join me today for part four of the series highlighting the epic true story of Leadbelly. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. This is the fourth episode in the Leadbelly series, so I won't do a recap of his entire complicated life and development up to this point, because I want to save some time, and if you've been listening to this sequentially, you probably don't need his whole life story crammed into a few minutes anyway. If you need a thorough recap and you've skipped a few episodes, the last episode, part three, has a detailed one after the intro song. Last time, we went over Huddy's murder trial. He was quickly found guilty of murder and sentenced to no less than seven, no more than 30 years in the Texas prison system, which, if you tuned in last time, 
you know was a brutal, labor-intensive, corporal punishment-driven, discriminatory system. Some prisoners made it out, and some would fall victim to overwork, illness, unsanitary conditions, and spend the next century decaying in unmarked graves. Some of them we found, like the Sugarland 95, a collection of bones and unmarked graves containing 95 African-American inmates that had been rented out to a plantation owner during the convict leasing system in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Huddy served his first two years in prison at Shaw Prison Farm. A year in, he escaped, but was discovered in the woods by a river within a day. After he was discovered, he tried committing suicide by drowning himself because he found death a more suitable substitute to the Texas penal system. But the guards pulled him out of the river, and realizing escape from prison was not an option, he figured the best way to get a reduced sentence was to behave himself, and he became a model inmate. But two years into his sentence, he was transferred to Sugarland, another prison farm more brutal than the last. Stories survive of frequent whippings, inmates being crammed together into something called the Dark Cell. This was a room, if you remember, with an area of 8 by 6 feet. It was 6 feet high, and as many as 8 men at a time would spend 36 hours surviving on one piece of cornbread, one cup of water, and no bedding, all in complete darkness. I don't even want to know what the toilet situation was. Some men would be shackled by their wrists and lifted up onto their tiptoes for four hours, though sometimes the guards let them hang there a bit longer. Bad as it was, while here at Sugarland, Huddy, now known to the other inmates as Leadbelly, would write some of his most important music. He was missing the jazz age and the blues craze going on outside his cell, and he was greatly influenced by the music he found inside the prisons, songs that had been isolated and passed down for years. Sugarland was also where his relationship with his wife Lethe finally came to an end. After years of infidelity from Huddy, their relationship was already strained. Now he was 300 miles away for potentially decades. They never formally divorced, at least no record of their divorce exists, but this is where their marriage ended. His father passed away while he was at Sugarland too, something that must have grieved him greatly. Now, he was here in front of Governor Pat Neff, hoping to impress the governor so much with his music that he would be given a pardon. Leadbelly sang many songs for the governor, including the now-famous Midnight Special. He kept away from anything lewd in his repertoire, and instead sang things like Down in the Valley and What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Huddy was not a religious man, but this was Texas, and he knew the governor probably was, so that's what he pandered to. He danced, too. We remember Huddy for his 12-string guitar and his voice, but he was, by all accounts, a fabulous dancer. He could also play five other instruments besides the guitar. And the governor was impressed, even more so when Huddy sang a song designed especially for Neff, he threw a Bible verse in there, again, pandering. He changed the name of his wife from Lethe to Mary to give it a more biblical feel, talked about how much he missed the wife he hadn't spoken to in several years, and how happy everyone would be if he could just go back home a little bit early. 
He failed to mention the murder he'd been convicted of, though, or the prison escape, or his other prison escape, or the fact that he'd been tried and convicted by the name Walter Boyd, because he'd already been a fugitive when he murdered a guy and no one knew who he actually was. The governor loved it. He gave Leadbelly some whiskey and told him, quote, I'm going to turn you loose after a while, but I'm going to keep you here so you can pick and dance for me when I come down. Leadbelly took this to mean that he'd be released any day, but days turned to weeks, turned to months, and no pardon was given. Almost a full year later, right at the end of Pat Neff's term in office, he decided to keep his promise to Leadbelly. And six years, seven months, and eight days into his sentence, Huddy was given a pardon. It was one of the last things Neff did in office, and Huddy's pardon was one of only five he ever gave in his career. This story would become a huge centerpiece in Leadbelly's life story. Truth be told, he probably would have been released not long into his minimum seven-year sentence anyway, since his escape had been struck from his record and his behavior had been exceptional, for the most part. In the end, he was only released about four and a half months early. But a pardon was a pardon, and Leadbelly took the $115 he'd made playing songs for the guards and the prisoners, which he had been allowed to keep, and he headed back to Houston. Not to his wife. He would never see her again. He had a girlfriend in Houston. Her name really was Mary, and he began looking for jobs and started playing his music once again. The blues, to his surprise, had become a national fad, and though he wasn't specifically a blues musician, his songs fit in perfectly with what was popular, and they had their own special flavor influenced from the time he'd spent isolated from the outside world. Almost immediately, he found himself in scrapes with the law. The officers patrolling the streets where Huddy was playing came to know him well. But at least for a while, his run-ins with the law were minor. Former chief of detectives, a man named T.K. Irwin, recalled Leadbelly years after he retired. He said Huddy would always sing and play when he was picked up by the police, and so some officers would pick him up just so they could hear him play. His relationship with Mary was clearly only casual, and he began losing interest in Houston. With his father dead, his mother was on her own back in Mooringsport. There was a booming oil industry there, and word came that there were jobs to be had, and Huddy was in desperate need of one of those. That $115 had gone fast. So after seven years of not seeing his mother, Huddy packed up his Stella, what was left of his belongings, and headed back home. Blues had exploded while Huddy was in prison. Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey had recorded some of their most influential music by now. Scouts from record companies were being sent out to communities all throughout the South. They held auditions and recorded just about anyone with talent they could find, looking for the next big blues star. In 1925, the year Huddy had been pardoned, Blind Lemon Jefferson was in Chicago recording his most influential music, some of which you heard in part two. Folk music scholars and anthropologists were busy at this time, too, 
hurrying to record traditional ballads, folk songs, work songs, and oral histories before they changed or disappeared completely. This had all been happening well before the blues craze of the 1920s, though. As early as 1890, anthropologist Jesse Walker Fuchs recorded the stories, language, and songs of the Passamaquoddy natives in Maine on an extremely early version of a cylinder recorder. His recordings of the Passamaquoddy tribe are available now, online. They are terrible, as far as quality goes, but extremely rich in historical significance. His cylinder machine was the equivalent to a tin soup can with a string running out of it, compared to an iPhone. And I almost didn't include this next recording in this episode because it's so hard to make out, and I couldn't clean it up with the software that I have. But I also couldn't resist sharing just a few moments of this Passamaquoddy war song with you that was recorded in 1890. 1890! That's 130 years ago. And here are just a few seconds of it. It's chilling, isn't it? Even if the quality sounds exactly like how you would think something recorded 130 years ago would sound. While scholars and music scouts were out finding talent, they did not find Leadbelly. This is weird. He was in the area around Shreveport, Houston, and Cotto Parish when scouts went there and held auditions, but for some reason, no recordings of him exist from that time, even though he was playing music actively again in the barrel houses, saloons, and anywhere with an audience. Maybe it's because he wasn't considered enough of a blues musician since his sound was more eclectic. Maybe he didn't have enough original material. He did like to put his own spin on classic songs. Maybe he just oddly missed the scouts every time they were around, or maybe he just wasn't interested. Whatever the reason, from 1925 to 1930, Huddy never recorded a song. He was still playing music, but it didn't bring in the money he needed. It's uncertain exactly what he did to bring in an income after his release from Sugarland. According to Wolf and Lornell's book, The Life and Legend of Leadbelly, which has been the most helpful and informative source for me throughout this series, Huddy likely found odd jobs at farms. There are also accounts of him making and selling illegally distilled liquor, as well as holding maintenance jobs and even working as a truck driver for the Gulf Refining Company for a bit, delivering pipes. What we do know for sure is that the more time that passed after his release, the more run-ins with the law Huddy found himself in. He began picking up his old habits of womanizing, drinking, and fighting. After he left Mary and Houston, he met a woman named Ira, and she would be in his life for at least the next five years, though their relationship was always tumultuous. Huddy would never be faithful, something that continuously hurt Ira. Once after another night of Huddy not coming home, 
Yura, out of frustration, smashed his guitar. When he came home and saw his 12-string smashed to pieces, he later commented that the only reason he didn't kill Ira was because he didn't want to go back to prison. He beat her, though, badly. After that, he made her wash clothes for money for three months until she made enough to buy him a new guitar. It's stories like this that make it hard to research Lead Belly sometimes. Violence was a common theme for him, once again. One night, while Huddy was playing at a dance, Ira was with him, and she very likely saved his life. While he was playing, a man snuck up behind him with a knife and tried slitting Huddy's throat. While that was happening, a second man with a gun charged Huddy from the front while he was fighting off the knife wielder. Ira, seeing what was happening, threw herself on the gunman, attacking him ferociously before he could get to Huddy. After he managed to throw off the man with the knife, Huddy grabbed the pistol and beat the gunman over the head with it, incapacitating him. The police actually showed up to this fight, but it wasn't something they wanted to deal with. They arrested no one and just told Leadbelly not to play music in the area anymore. The man with the knife had managed to slit Huddy's throat, though not to a fatal degree. It was bleeding terribly, but it would heal. He would carry the gnarled scar on his neck for the rest of his life, and it would become one of his most striking features, and a grim reminder of his violent past. During his relationship with Ira, Huddy had an affair with a woman named Lizzie Pugh, and their relationship would result in yet another pregnancy. On September 18, 1927, Lizzie gave birth to another one of Huddy's daughters, who was named Jessie Mae Ledbetter. This was the fourth pregnancy and third surviving child of Huddy since he was 16. Unlike the other children he'd fathered, Huddy did show some interest in Jessie, visiting her from time to time. However, his relationship with her mother Lizzie ended due to pressure from Lizzie's mother, who wanted Huddy nowhere near either her daughter or her new granddaughter. Given Huddy's constant violent altercations, her concerns were definitely valid. Not long after the knife incident, Huddy got into a fight in a saloon. This time, he was hit so hard in the head with a glass bottle that he felt numbness in his fingers for the next year. A number of stories like this have survived and indicate that violence was escalating in Huddy's life, but none of these incidents involved Huddy's arrest, at least for a while. But something happened in January of 1930 that changed everything. There are several different versions about what happened, all of them different. But it seems like in every rendition, racial tension was the catalyst that finally drew the law's attention. Until now, Huddy had only had run-ins with other African Americans, something the law didn't care much about at the time, unless someone ended up dead. This time, Huddy assaulted a white man, and that was something officers who were working for a criminal justice system very much interested in segregation and racism would not ignore, even if Huddy had not been the instigator to the violence that occurred. Like I said, there are different versions of what went down, and Huddy never really spoke of it later. So we can only go on witness accounts from that day, as well as a couple of short newspaper columns. 
The gist of what we can garner from the varying accounts is this, and I'm going largely off his cousin's account, a woman named Blanche Love. In January 1930, Huddy, now in his early 40s, was in Mooringsport, enjoying a night off. The Salvation Army Band was playing outside of a drugstore called Crooms, a popular spot downtown. It was common for drugstores and local business owners of the day to pay or invite bands and musicians to play outside their stores in order to entice a crowd of potential customers. When the band began to play a song Huddy liked, one account said it was the song Onward Christian Soldiers, he began tapping his feet to it. No big deal, right? When you like a song, it's totally normal to tap your foot or your fingers to it. You might even do it without even noticing you're doing it. But a group of white men saw Huddy tapping his feet and thought it would be a good reason to confront him. They thought the fact that he was enjoying the music by tapping his feet was irreligious. Huddy was a big, stocky guy, and I'm guessing the only reason these men even approached him was because they were in a group. They also felt they were entitled to tell him to stop, something that must have irked him. But Huddy ignored them and continued tapping his feet. These white men then became angry at this black man who was not obeying their order. Remember, this was a time of segregation, where racism was a social norm. The group of men told him to move away. He continued to ignore them. The men then physically grabbed Huddy and began pushing him away. Some of the men then pulled knives on Huddy. One of the men slashed him with a knife on the top of his head, giving him a bloody gash. Huddy then pulled out his own knife in self-defense and slashed the arm of a white man named Dick Ellett. Dick is an appropriate name for this guy. When the cops came, they saw that Huddy was black and the other men were white, so they arrested Huddy and let the white instigators go. We know that Huddy had many violent run-ins throughout his lifetime. He was no stranger to violence. But he knew that in the South, assaulting a white man would have meant certain jail time. The cops wouldn't just ignore this one. And Huddy did not want to go back to jail. So the accounts stating he was defending himself and trying to ignore the group of white men are probably valid. But that is not how the legal system or the newspapers saw it. This was the world of Jim Crow. An article from the Shreveport Journal, dated January 16, 1930, says, quote, The trouble with the Negro started while he, when in an alleged intoxicated condition, was disrespectful to a Salvation Army meeting that was in progress on a Mooringsport street. According to reports, Ledbetter insisted upon doing a dance at the service, which aroused a group which included Dick Ellett. In a scuffle that followed, Ledbetter drew a knife and slashed Ellett's arm, unquote. The article mentions Huddy, quote, aroused a group, which tells us he was approached by the other men. The article also exaggerated his foot tapping into a dance. I'm guessing the reporter was a bit biased in who they questioned for their story. Huddy was never asked for his side of the story, and this article didn't even mention the fact that he had been injured. The Shreveport Times ran an article that same day telling a very different story, but also makes Huddy out to be the only one at fault. It says, quote, Dick Ellett, 36 years old, is in the Highland Sanitarium suffering from severe cuts inflicted by a drunk, crazed Negro 
who attacked him late Wednesday afternoon at his home near Mooringsport, where the Negro was butchering a hog. The Negro, Huddy Ledbetter, 43 years old, is in the parish jail charged with attempt to murder. A bottle of rubbing alcohol was found on the Negro with more than half of its contents gone. Ledbetter incurred a gash on the top of his head during the altercation that took place." Unquote. That article doesn't even mention the group of men assaulting Huddy. It just makes it sound like Huddy, in a drunken craze, attacked an innocent white man who was minding his own business at home. It didn't matter to the court or the jury who started what. Minutes after the completion of testimonies during the trial, Huddy was found guilty. There's no way it was a fair trial. Huddy's verdict of guilty was ensured the second the group of white men approached him. He was found guilty of assault to murder and was sentenced to no less than six years and no more than ten years of hard labor. This time, he wasn't going to Sugarland. This time, he was going to a place that allegedly made the most hardened of criminals break down and cry when they received their sentences. He was going to Angola, arguably the most notorious and bloodiest prison in American history. This episode is sponsored by Podcorn. If you're a podcaster, you know how hard it can be to monetize and how much of a hassle it can be to find the right advertisers. That's where Podcorn comes in. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to all sorts of sponsorship opportunities. You get to set your own rates and choose which brands you want to represent. When I reached out to them, they got back to me in less than 24 hours with an opportunity. I know how expensive it can be to make a podcast and how long it can take to attract sponsors. Podcorn makes it easy and helps you monetize on your own terms so you can worry less about those hosting fees and get back to creating. No matter how big or how small your listener base is, if you're a podcaster, check out the Podcorn link in the show notes to start browsing your sponsorship opportunities today. Now, back to the show. Angola has been known as many things throughout its history. Its official name is the Louisiana State Penitentiary, but it has been called the Alcatraz of the South, the Farm, and the bloodiest prison in the world. I don't know if that last one is statistically accurate, but its violent reputation was well known in Huddy's day, and for many decades after. Its reputation was well-deserved. One in ten inmates were stabbed there every year in Leadbelly's time. Some were stabbed to death. It was originally an 8,000-acre plantation run on slave labor in the 1830s. It was called Angola because that's where most of its slaves were taken from. In 1880, former Confederate Major Samuel Lawrence James bought it and turned it into a prison, benefiting from the convict leasing system we went over in the last episode. Stories of severe abuse, unregulated violence, malnourishment, and men being worked to death caused the state to take control of the prison in 1901, after it ended its convict leasing program. But the conditions did not improve much for the inmates, not for decades. In 1952, 31 inmates slit their own Achilles tendons in protest of the harsh conditions. 
They did this in the hopes of garnering enough attention to effect change. They were known as the Heel Street Gang, and while their actions did get them some attention and some national news media coverage on the harsh conditions at Angola, things like sexual assault, violence, including stabbings, still abounded. According to Kip Lornell and Charles Wolfe, Angola was probably as close to slavery as any person could come in 1930. Prisoners labored from what they called kin to cant, which meant they labored from dawn, just after 5 a.m., until they couldn't see anymore after dark. Angola is tucked away on a bend of the Mississippi River. Inmates throughout the years have tried escaping and swimming their way to freedom, but most have drowned trying. Angola housed both black and white prisoners, though they were segregated. 130 women were also housed at the prison in their own camp, Camp D, and worked and lived under the same conditions as the men. Huddy didn't talk much about his time at Angola, but we know that at least twice he faced the whip. In 1931, he was given 10 lashes. The reason written down was laziness, but we can only guess why. It's possible he just wasn't moving fast enough. He was given 15 lashes the following year. The reason given for that was impudence. But despite these two incidents, Huddy was a good inmate, like he had been at Sugarland. He worked where and when he was told to, and he kept out of trouble as much as he could. Outside the prison walls, the Great Depression was devastating the rest of the country. The stock market had crashed, unemployment skyrocketed, thousands of banks closed, the Dust Bowl wreaked havoc on crops and people in the Southern Plains region of the U.S., causing livestock to die, people to starve, and a huge migration of people moving from farmland to city in search of work. Due to a squeezing economic budget, the already underfunded prison was having to make cutbacks which included releasing some inmates early. Wanting to take advantage of the early release program, two years into his tenure at Angola, Huddy formally asked the Louisiana State Board of Pardons to commute his sentence. They responded that he could be set free on June 24, 1934, four and a half years into his six-year minimum sentence, if the governor, a man named O.K. Allen, signed his petition. At the same time Huddy was receiving this news, a man named John Lomax was traveling around the South with his 18-year-old son, Alan, in search of folk songs. The duo was recording as many authentic folk songs as they could for the recently established archives of folk songs in the Library of Congress. On this trip, they were specifically interested in black labor songs and thought that prisons would be the perfect place to find them, as the men and women imprisoned away from the mainstream might be more likely to still be singing some of the older work songs unaffected by popular music. John Lomax contacted Warren Jones at Angola, asking if there were any prisoners there who possessed some talent. There were many prisoners who were musically inclined at Angola, and John and Alan would record a number of them. Jones, who was familiar with the reputation Huddy had for music, which he was allowed to play on the weekends, would introduce Leadbelly to John and Alan Lomax. The relationship Huddy would develop with these two men was a roller coaster of complication. It would last for years, and for better or for worse, 
His relationship with John Lomax would be one of the most important of his lifetime, and the Lomaxes would be instrumental in promoting Leadbelly's career. If it hadn't been for the Lomaxes, we probably would have lost Leadbelly to history, along with his most famous songs. John Lomax was an important figure in finding and preserving American folk songs. By the time he headed for Angola, he had already been recording for two decades. Teddy Roosevelt himself had been an admirer of his work, even writing a recommendation for him as he applied for grants. Recording and preserving folk songs was not lucrative, and he often had to teach at the University of Texas, go on lecture circuits, or work odd jobs to pay the bills. He traveled out to the musicians themselves, prisoners, songsters, the further removed from the mainstream the better, as far as he was concerned. He traveled tens of thousands of miles and recorded thousands of songs for the Library of Congress. He was integral in preserving some of the earliest American folk songs, and many of his recordings are still a part of the Library of Congress archives today. He was in his late 60s when he met Leadbelly. John was born in 1867 in Mississippi, but was raised in Texas, where he became fascinated by what he called cowboy songs. This childhood fascination would turn into a lifelong pursuit of music and the fervent desire to preserve it. In 1910, he published a book called Cowboy Songs and Other Frontier Ballads. The book was received with much acclaim, boosted his reputation as a scholar, and helped garner attention for him on his lecture circuits. In 1933, a year after the death of his wife, Lomax began a 10-year relationship with the Library of Congress. They gave him a cylinder recording machine and some blank records. The machine alone weighed 315 pounds, about 143 kilos, and was difficult for John and Alan to maneuver. They ended up having to remodel the back portion of the Ford they were traveling in to hold what added up to over 500 pounds, roughly 227 kilos of gear. Lomax was collecting songs for his new book in progress that would be called American Ballads and Folk Songs. You can still get copies of both of his books today. Because of the depression and budget cuts, when the Lomaxes set out on their southern trip, John was only being paid $1 a year by the Library of Congress. This guy was driven by passion for musical preservation alone. Much of the funding for his work came out of his own pocket. The rest came from foundations and corporations willing to donate. Much like podcasting, this was not a lucrative passion to have. The Lomaxes rolled up to Angola on a summer day in 1933. They were thoroughly searched, as they were the first visitors allowed in the prison in over a year. For four days, they listened to and recorded both female and male inmates. When Leadbelly's turn came up, both John and Alan knew they were hearing something special. Leadbelly sang a number of songs for them. John and Alan both lit up when he sang his version of Goodnight Irene. Huddy didn't write Goodnight Irene, it was an old song, but Huddy's version would become wildly popular, one of the most popular songs in the country just a few years later, though all of this was unbeknownst to the three of them as they sat there in Angola prison together for the first time. 
The recordings from those four days still exist, but they're so poor in quality they're nearly indiscernible. But Billy's songs so haunted the Lomaxes that they would return to Angola a year later to record him again. Here is one of those songs. This is Goodnight, Irene. She tell him she told me that you was too young. She's 18 years old. I wish the Lord that I never seen your face. I'm sorry your boy was born. It broke his heart. Irene, good night. Irene, good night. Good night, Irene. Good night, Irene. I any country Sometimes I live in town Sometimes I have a great notion Jumping in and the river and drown Stop gambling, quit staying out late at night. What are you gonna do? Go home and tell your wife and your family where you ought to be. And sit down about the far side bright and keep a coming. I read good night. I read good night. Good night, I read, and good night, I read. I If I return her back on me, what you gonna do? I'm gonna take a morphine and die. She said, go ahead and kill yourself then. Irene, good night. Irene, good night. Good night, Irene, and good night, Irene. I guess you're in my dream. Happy with the music they had recorded, the Lomaxes packed up and continued their journey. Meanwhile, Huddy continued to try and get the governor's approval for an early release. He wrote the governor a poem. He sent it by way of a Mr. R. L. Himes, general manager of the Louisiana State Penitentiary. Himes replied to Huddy and told him he would not be considered for an early release because he was a second-timer, having already served time at Sugarland. Huddy wrote back and lied, saying he had never served time at Sugarland. That had been a man named Walter Boyd. If you remember, Walter Boyd was the name Huddy used while he was a fugitive and during his first incarceration. 
Himes and Huddy went back and forth. Huddy tried appealing to Himes' humanity, saying he had a wife and child to support outside of prison. This, again, was a lie. Huddy was estranged from his wife, and while he had fathered children through some of the affairs he'd had, he was not financially supporting any of them. So Huddy continued to get frustrated, and the Lomaxes continued to record. Eventually, John Lomax was able to get his hands on an improved recording machine. He wrote to Hines asking if Huddy was still in prison, and that, if so, he would like to come record more of his songs. Hines confirmed Huddy was still at Angola, and the Lomaxes made a second trip to record Leadbelly. Leadbelly eagerly agreed to record more songs for the Lomaxes. In fact, he had written a new song called Governor O.K. Allen. Huddy's plan was to have the Lomaxes record his song for the governor, then give the governor the disc of the recording, after which the governor would hear it and be so impressed that he would sign for Huddy's release right there on the spot. Huddy recorded his Governor O.K. Allen song for the Lomaxes, among many others. Leadbelly pleaded with John to take his case directly to the governor, along with the recording. This is one of those times in the Leadbelly story where history and legend don't agree. The legend goes that John agreed to plead Leadbelly's case. The governor listened to the recording and was so impressed with his talent that he agreed to release Huddy if Lomax agreed to take him into his care. What really happened is this. Lomax took the disc to the governor's office, but did not give it to the governor. This is according to his son, Alan Lomax. John simply left it with the governor's secretary. Then, the governor did sign a routine order for Huddy's release due to good behavior and a shortage of funding. His release was conditional under the, quote, double good time policy because of his behavior and was subject to something called hog law, which meant that if he were to find himself incarcerated in Louisiana again, he would have to serve out the rest of his old sentence on top of his new one. The governor did sign for Leadbelly's release, and he was freed on August 1st, 1934, four and a half years into his six-year minimum sentence. However, the release was not due to Huddy's song, but was simply routine. This would come up again and again in the next few years as the Lomaxes began catapulting Leadbelly's career, using his time in prison and his violent past to ignite the interest of northern audiences. This is when the legend that he was released from Angola because of O.K. Allen's song began circulating, and you'll still find websites saying that this is exactly what happened. This is in part because it gets confused with his pardon from Sugarland, and because there are magazine articles from Leadbelly's time that helped spread the legend of his release from Angola. But the routine nature of his release is confirmed in a letter written by Warden L.A. Jones in 1939, after he was asked for information about the reason for Huddy's release from Angola by the city of New York's probation department. We'll get to the reasons Huddy was in New York in the next episode. Jones' response stated exactly this, quote, This man has been the recipient of wide publicity in various magazines of national circulation, the story usually being that he sang or wrote such moving appeals to the governor that he was pardoned. Such statements have no foundation in fact. He received no clemency, and his discharge was a routine matter 
under the good time law, which applies to first and second time offenders, unquote. That was written and signed by Warden L.A. Jones in 1939. So the legend that Leadbelly was released from Angola because of his song is probably not true. But for Leadbelly, the reasons for his release did not matter as much as the fact that he was, once again, a free man. Now 46 years old, Huddy took what was left of his belongings, including his precious 12-string Stella, and walked out of prison back into the world. This time, he would make history. This series, like every series I do, is taking longer than I thought it would. I'm going to try and squeeze the rest of Leadbelly's story into one more episode in three weeks, but I have no idea if my love for the details will let me actually achieve that. I find it's in the details that these stories tend to come alive again. I promised that at the end of each episode I would play you a song. This time, I'm going to play you that song Huddy recorded for Governor O.K. Allen, the one he hoped would secure his release. I will be back with your next episode in three weeks. In the meantime, if you want to get a hold of me, you can do that at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can help support the show and get me a dollar closer a month to my dream of full-time podcasting by going to patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. Podcasting, like recording and preserving old American folk music, is not a lucrative business for most of us who do it. It is a hard thing to love to do. But most of us do it because we love doing it. And I love sharing history, making it accessible, and bringing you a piece of it as often as I can. A huge thank you to my patrons who are helping me fund this podcast, and to everyone who has reviewed and subscribed. You have definitely helped get the show more attention than I would have been able to get it myself. Seriously, thank you. And thank you for listening. I've been your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and until we meet again, my dear wandering stars of podcast land, go make some history. Now, here is Leadbelly singing his song to Governor O.K. Allen. Enjoy. Mr. Harvey running all through the penitentiary system. He was a 
Yeah. 